Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO, and I've got a very exciting episode for you coming right up. Uh, we're going to be talking about B2B. Yes, I know, ladies and gentlemen, it's not always the most exciting topic to be talking about in marketing, but that's why we need to. I think B2B is often overlooked by marketers, but it's actually incredibly important. Almost all of us in marketing, whether we consider ourselves B2C or B2B marketers, need to sell through other people, whether it's customers or distributors or whoever. It's very important important we understand how B2B works. So I'm very delighted in this episode to be joined by none other than the Peter and Les of B2B marketing themselves, Peter Weinberg and John Lombardo from LinkedIn's B2B Institute. They are two brilliant people who are doing lots of good work understanding how marketing in B2B actually works. They've got tons of insights into B2B and they also bring their own flair and personality as well that you'll find out all about on the interview. So listen, without further ado, let's get into this uh, talking about why we should all care about B2B. Peter Weinberg and John Lombardo, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Delighted to be here, an honor and a privilege. An honor and a privilege, delighted to be here. Now, listen, I must congratulate the new arrivals, the B2B marketing scene that have just arrived here. So, Peter, I'll start with you. Um, A recent dad, in fact. Recent dad, my darling son, James, born on New Year's Day. So six weeks ago, New Year's, fun fact, second least common birthday after Christmas. Less, less competition. Did, did it mean the, uh, the the hospital was empty? Did you get like extra service? Yeah, it was quite empty. But it's important to be contrarian, including on the day you choose to be born. So I'm proud of my son, an early uh, budding contrarian. Fantastic. And John, of course, last year as well. Welcome to uh, fatherhood. Something I didn't realize until just right now, Peter's son, James, born on the new year. Yeah. My daughter, Sadie, born on Yom Kippur, also the new year. Do you enjoy the game on Sunday? Uh, I did. It was annoying because this football game kept interrupting the commercials, uh, which was quite oh, irksome only, only, to only me. us would say this, wouldn't we? But, <laughs> but I did enjoy it. I thought the ads had improved. John and I talked a little about it. I feel like last year you saw a lot of like brand purpose, we're saving the world type stuff. It True. felt like the vibe had shifted a yeah. bit to more like let's entertain and people and be a little fun and funny. I thought that was a, a positive change for the industry. Favorite ad? What, what stood out for you guys? I really liked the uh, the ad for the Doritos and the Cheetos. Yeah. Number two. On I, li- I liked it because you could see the product placement naturally mm-hmm. in, in the jungle. Of course, it's natural to have Doritos or Cheetos placed in the jungle. Very natural. Uh, but then the song was just amazing. I mean, yeah. Les Bennett has that piece with Sarah Carter about how sound is the most underutilized brand asset or jingle, you know, is the most underutilized asset. And the so- song was just amazing and like emotional and powerful. And I thought it was a very good ad. And I remembered the brand, which was one of the key things. I didn't just remember the song. I remembered the, uh, the brand. Well, it's not often you're up against 80 other world-class advertisers at the same time in the same show. So yeah, being remembered is, is, is half the battle. Peter, what about you? I got to say, I don't know if any, I haven't actually read the recaps of what people's favorite ads were, but I was partial to the Uber Eats ad. I don't know if it's a very unpopular opinion. You'll have to tell me how it scored in the system one methodology. But I mean, when I watch the ads, I sit there, of course, with my mental checklist of, is it about a buying situation? Is it extremely well branded? And does it get some sort of emotional reaction? And I thought it was about a buying situation. It was, you usually think of Uber Eats in X buying situation. Now we want you to think of it in Y buying situation. extremely well-branded, impossible to think it was an ad for anything else. And I thought it was just funny, you know, people eating soap, people eating sponges. Uh, maybe it wasn't for everyone, but I thought it, it ticked It ticked my mental checklist. Did you say there were 80 ads? There were 80 ads. This is a fun exercise for us. I can only remember, I didn't see the Uber Eats ad. I didn't see the Salesforce ad. I did see the Doritos and Cheetos ad, which I can remember. I remember the T-Mobile ads, not because I remember any single thing they said. I just remember the color, pink. I'm trying to think if I if I remember any other ads. There's a bunch of car ads that all seem the exact same to yeah. me. Yeah, the branding was real bad. You know, oh. the next day people would say, "Oh, it was a great crypto ad with Larry David," and I said, "Oh, what? You know, what company was that?" And yeah. pe- nobody had any idea. Or, "Oh, you know, Amazing Sopranos ad. What car brand was that? No idea." You know, the well, brand. I, I reckon getting to ten would be impressive, right? Out of, if you could name ten, that would be quite hard. The Larry David ad was FTX, which is a crypto exchange. 
the, the you're coin- a heavy buyer of the category. True. So, so I'm going to notice branding. that kind of stuff. They didn't need to run that. Uh, the Coinbase ad. Did with you the queue QR all the codes? Code. I did. Yeah, you did. Okay. But then I got to the website and, and the website had crashed. So <laughs> you know, it didn't quite pay what's, off. It's, what's the opposite of a proof of concept? Yeah. Unproof of concept. The funny tweet I saw about that is it's just like giving you a good sense for what the product experience is going to be like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because anytime anything happens, like people sell Bitcoin, it's like the website crashes and yeah. you you magically can't sell for whatever yeah. reason. <laughs> Well, actually, it's was, it was interesting. I had um, uh, Lesia from Boston Beer, who actually won uh, the Super Bowl uh, on, the, on the system on testing, actually. And she was saying that their strategy is to uh, seed the ad in advance on purpose so that people have some familiarity with, with it. So when they see it on game night, they go, oh, that's a Sam Adams ad. Because she said, you, it's so competitive on the eyes itself that unless you spend the money in advance getting people to already see it, you, you know, you're, you're fighting uphill battle getting them to remember you on the night itself. So, yeah, that stands to reason. I thought Budweiser used to have an exclusive on the Super Bowl and no other beer brands yes. could advertise. Did that elapse? That's right. So the, the way they, they're a regional advertiser. That's how they get around it. Yeah. So nationally, that's true. But regionally, they can uh, they can sneak in there. Mm, loophole. Mm. Yeah. That's one of my favorite weird facts about Super Bowl advertising is that Budweiser bought like a 20-year exclusive on it, yeah. which I think is very brilliant. Cancels out the competition and gets you enormous reach against people who would buy it. Yeah. Very impressive. Very impressive. All right. Listen, let's um, let's get in. So uh, congratulations on your Marketing Week article, which um, is doing very well. In fact, I know this because I had Russell Parsons on just before Christmas. And I believe that your B2B articles made it in the top five most read articles of last year. Was that a surprise? It was news to us. You You broke the news to us. Yeah, but we were absolutely just delighted to hear that. It doesn't surprise me in some ways only because nobody cares about B2B. Nobody (laughs) writes about B2B. Nobody researches B2B. Nobody makes ads in B2B. Um, So I would say like we... It's a gap in the market. It's like a headline news. B2B article written. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We jumped over the world's smallest hurdle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the way I think about it is like we're all in B2B. I mean, who's not in B2B? Everyone has a customer, right? Even if you're a B2C marketer, you've often got to get your products on the shelf before you can... uh, you know, talks to the consumers. So it, it figures out we should all be paying attention to this. Yeah, it's very odd. Uh, our boss, Jan, likes to point out, you know, everybody acts like it's this super niche category. Yeah. By some estimates, half the economy is B2B yeah. companies. If you look at all the biggest companies, you know, like Microsoft, Facebook, Google, like actually those are at its core B2B yeah. companies. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, when we started working together, I was, you know, I said, oh, g- you know, give me a few of your top customers. And then you reel off some of the world's biggest tech businesses. Yeah, Rory wrote a piece for us a while ago called The Objectivity Trap, which is an amazing piece of B2BI research. But I think he said it was something like 50% of the UK economy is B2B and 71% of the US economy is actually B2B. And even today I was talking to Alicia, who worked at Unilever, and she's like, yeah, but my I was selling to retailers, so I was actually in B2B, though it's fundamentally yeah. like Dove was a B2B product, so sorry, B2C yeah. product, yeah. so... And in my experience, you've got to win the battle in store before you can win the battle with the consumer. It's, it's all, you know, Byron Sharp's, you know, mental and physical availability. You've got to do the physical bit first, right? No point making them aware of you if they can't go in and buy you seconds. So. Right. Even the most B2C business has some massive B2B component. Yeah, yeah exactly. Hi, Byron. Nice to, nice to see you. I'm sure you're listening. Hi, Byron. Well, I got to thank him. I should thank him officially on this podcast as well, because it was it was his uh, his episode that got me another another useful bit of reach for the, the podcast. Got it into number one position in, in four markets around the world. So there we go. Not surprised. Welcome to the. Uh, I'm glad the we appeared marketing. after Byron, I'm gonna, not you, before you, you Byron. Timed it well. I'm just, I'm well. just happy yeah. we're on the same podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> sharp. You know, I consider this a huge professional win for myself. Standing on the shoulders of other reach maximalists. There we go. So listen, one question that I'm sure you get asked all the time, right, is uh, is B2B really different to B2C? So Peter, maybe uh, I'll I'll try you out on this question because I know it's one that's featured in Marketing Week. We try to break it down into these three components or three dimensions of thinking about the question, which is what are the strategic differences, what are the tactical differences, and what are the political differences? And I think our, our thesis would be strategically B2B not that different from B2C. It's all about reaching as many category buyers as you can with creative that cuts through, leads to long-term sales. Uh, you know, it, you'd be hard pressed to find one of these marketing laws or principles from Ehrenberg Bass that doesn't apply in B2B. The rules are pretty much the same. Tactically, they're pretty different. I mean, an obvious thing would just be media choice. If you want to reach all category buyers, that's true for Coca-Cola or IBM. But the channels that get you reach against IT decision makers are different from the ones that get you uh, reach against people with mouths. 
I think the biggest difference and something we talk a lot about the B2B at the B2B Institute is the political differences, whereas a lot of B2C firms are kind of marketing led, right? Like marketing runs the show at Procter & Gamble or Unilever. John and I have yet to come across a single B2B company that is marketing-led. You know, they're usually product-led or they're sales-led. You know, marketing is usually not in charge or calling the shots. And they're in this tough situation where sales wants 10 million leads tomorrow, and that's kind of what they have to deliver. So uh, they're like room to operate as a B2B marketer. You can't do a lot of the things that B2C marketers can do, even if it works just as well in B2B. This makes a lot of sense, actually, because I'm I'm in pure B2B and it's sort of first time in my career, actually. And you're absolutely right, because in B2C, the marketers write the strategy, they, you know, they lead the brand plans, that most of the big, you know, innovation, execution, all of it, it comes from the marketing departments, really, and the sales department's execution. In B2B, it kind of like almost operates the other way around, where the, you know, the marketing department is seen as a support act to the sales department, which is culturally quite a different dynamic. Very different. Yeah, I think support, I mean, if we're being really honest with ourselves at a lot of B2B companies, the marketing department is just a sales support function where they're like, we need PowerPoint decks, we need sales brochures, maybe we need some leads. You know, they're uh, just in a very different political situation or dynamic. There's a good pithy phrase from Silicon Valley, which I think describes this quite well, which is you ship your org chart. And you could think of it as B2B firms are either sales-led, in which case sales is the most important thing and marketing is not important. Even maybe product isn't all that important in that kind of world. Or you could think of it as most B2B firms, especially tech firms, they're product-led. But in that case, marketing's still not important. But you really cannot find any B2B companies that are marketing-led. So either product's the most important thing and marketing is useless because the product sells itself, or sales is the most important thing because sales sells everything and marketing is useless. But it's true. You never find any place where marketers are marketers like you would think of them in the consumer package good space, you know, which is a shame. But you know, the organizational design influences influences the organizational yeah. choices. And yeah. you know, we do come across this all the time. I actually had somebody from HP tell me for the first time ever that creativity was important. Really? Yeah, and it could be like a 10 to 20x multiplier. And I just thought it was interesting. Like, we all know that from having studied this, but I never hear that from B2B marketers. I never hear anybody emphasize the power and importance of creativity. So do you think that the, the organizational difference you described there, does that explain, I'm going to make a bit of a statement now, but I think we've got the data to back out, why B2B ads are largely not very good. Is that is that because the, you know, the talent's not working on it, it's not priority for the business, it's not where the investment goes? Is that partly why? I think it's a big part of the problem. I mean, there is just how well do marketers know the research on marketing effectiveness? I'm sure it's been a theme on the podcast. You know, we read the Ehrenberg Bass research very closely, as do you. What percentage of marketers are familiar with that stuff? I would guess like sub 10%, maybe sub 5%. So there is just like a awareness of what works problem in B2B and in B2C. Uh, but yeah, I think the the organizational challenges explain a lot of it. We've written about the product delusion and the power of product people in B2B organizations, and John already touched upon it. Product people think all that matters is product. Uh, to the extent marketing matters at all, it's just to tell people how great the product is. So the idea that you might run ads that isn't just about your product features and specifications is like a, a crazy idea in B2B, even though the marketing effectiveness research says just telling people about your product features and specifications a very ineffective strategy, right? So uh, even if they know what the right things are to do, they have trouble actually doing those things because they can't get product or sales or often finance to approve their plans to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, But let's talk some data on this as well, because I know John and I, when when, when you and I were doing some work a couple of years ago, we actually tested the B2B category, didn't we, to see uh, how it compares. And if I remember the data right, roughly speaking, half of all B2C ads score a one star, which means there's no demonstrable effects in the long term on the brand's performance. On B2B, I think it was 77, wasn't it? Almost, well, just over three quarters of B2B ads don't have any brand built. Now, I should say it's brand building impact, of course. You know, they're probably designed for sales activation instead. Was that a shock to you when you heard that? Not really. I've seen a lot of ads on LinkedIn over the years. (laughs) So um, it wasn't surprising to me, but what was nice to see was the data support, you know, what we've long, long believed or long seen. But I think it's always fascinating to see. I mean, if you actually look at the data, it's something like 92% of ads score one star or two scars, scores, uh, stars, which is by your methodology saying that they're effectively going to generate no growth. So in some ways, 
it's not even a surprise that sales or product doesn't believe in marketing in B2B because the ads are so good, bad that they don't generate any, yeah. any positive outcomes, you know? Um, so it is a shame uh, and we show, but we show, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for a lot of people. I mean, honestly, that's how I think about it. It's like, it's depressing on the one hand because the ads are so bad, but for people who are willing to kind of dig in and invest in creativity, invest in media that does, you know, that, that does reach the right people and generate outcomes. I mean, it's a huge opportunity. So the, we've talked about brand advertising and creative brand advertising as being the single biggest opportunity for most B2B companies. And that's probably true because they're optimizing lots of other parts of the marketing process, but they're absolutely not investing in promotion or creativity in any way. I get that. That's probably the last most least important P, but it's still an incredibly important P, which does offer, you know, a big multiplier, and they're just not actually doing that today. So, given the state of B two B advertising, who's doing it well? So, who who would you guys kind of point to as an example of getting this right? I think probably uh, our pick for best B two B marketing organization would be Salesforce, and I think a lot of the best practices we talk about and try to get our clients to adopt, Salesforce has been doing for years. There's multiple things I could call out, but you know, one that just comes to mind for me first is they make really big bets and they do it consistently over long periods of time. You know, they have these content franchises like their state of sales report, they do it every single year. They've got Astro, they're a feral raccoon child. That's true. That's unusual, isn't it? Yep. Like, don't very see that unusual. very often in B2B. Right. So they've got these distinctive assets, which almost no B2B brands have at all. Uh, but not only do they have them, they make enormous bets against them, and they just do it repeatedly every single year. So, you know, the scale at which they bet on brand, the consistency at which they do it, and with the distinctiveness that they do it, I think is really best in class. Uh, we talk about it a lot because there are so few examples. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. actually it's actually really hard to find B two B brands who are following a lot of these principles. So, we well, made a good point on consistency actually, because um, you know, it, you know, in B two C land, consistency I think is reasonably well understood that you build a campaign over a long period of time. But I think because B2B is often considered tactical, quote unquote, then it will change with the product. It will change with the latest sales initiative. And therefore, you don't have that kind of consistent idea or character running through. And I think that's what, like you say, a Salesforce is a brilliant idea of that. One of the odd things about B2B is, as we talked about, marketing is purely a support function. And so it is very tactical. And it's just getting short-term leads. That's all that matters. But when we look at the impact of companies that run brand ads in combination with lead gen ads, as we call them, we actually see that it's very valuable to sales, ironically. Salespeople from well-known brands, they get more responses to in-mails, which is kind of an invite to have a meeting or have a conversation. So, I mean, one of the interesting weird things about it is all the evidence shows that when you have great brand advertising in B2C or in B2B, you get more talent, you get more meetings. So it supports all parts of the business. It's good for kind of pricing power and marketing. It's good for getting sales for meetings, right? And it's actually good for hiring talent. So it's, it's, I think the conversation is starting to shift a little bit. I've got a good conversation with this guy named Pierre Bouvard, who works uh, in radio, but he was saying, you know, they have a lot more B2B advertisers who are investing in big brand campaigns. And I think it is starting to shift, but honestly, like when you ask the question, I get to give Salesforce, uh, there was an amazing campaign that HP did a while back with the, what was it, the red monster? The, or the IT green monster. Mon- the IT monster was killer. But then they canned that and they have a new Christian Slater. I think it's the wolf. Uh, I came across a funny character, which I sent to you. This cloud company called Cumulo, Q-U-M-U-L-O. And they have a, a kumquat as their mascot, but it's a grumpy kumquat. So it's called the grumpquat. And it's actually... You know, it's a smaller company. I don't know Cumulo. Maybe more people in IT do. But like, they are on the verge of if they can commit to that and can kind of like get a lot of reach and a lot of fame over long periods of time, the consistency factor with the character, they could be onto something very big. So I'll give them a shout out because I want to see them stay with it. Yeah, but this is where the political conversation becomes so important because, you know, all of this stuff works. Having a brand character like Astro works. But you've got to imagine then these marketers have to go to the sales team and the finance team and say, you know, we're going to have a talking kumquat. As and they're like, are. what the hell? Yeah, yeah. they're like, what are Come you on, talking about? Come on, we just want to know what the price know? is this exactly. month. Exactly. Yeah. It makes them seem ridiculous, frivolous, even though it's what works. So it's just well, so they, hard to get those ideas across well, actually, the line. Well, actually, to give some kudos to you guys, but this, this is why what you do is so important because in every business there are these conversations happening and people need the evidence to to go, why have I got this cuddly, furry animal in my in my ad, you know? Thank you, John. I think so we're really saving the world. I, think will, it, I, know, I, I tell my wife that every day, she says, how's your job? I say, very important yeah. in life. Really important. <laughs> I, I'd say in many ways, yeah. the future of the world hangs yeah. on the work that we do at the B2B Institute. No it question. doesn't. There we go. This does get at an idea that we should maybe talk about a little bit, which is just like publicity versus persuasion, which we talked about. I can't remember in which article, but I think all B2B marketers think about 
ads as being, it's about persuasion. I should show you the ad and it should persuade you, you know, while you're looking at the ad, how good the product is, how cheap it is, or how effective it is, whatever it is. Something very rational that should get you to buy right away. And I think the job of advertising, as we would understand it, is not persuasion to get you to buy, it's publicity, just to kind of remind you that these products and services exist. So at some point you can buy when you're in the market. But I just don't think most people know that it's not persuasion. That's not the purpose or best use of advertising. It's more publicity. And I think if you even go back a long ways, like have you read Paul Feldwick? Yes. Oh, Peddler. Yeah. The um, Peddler Who Sings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his books make very clear that the heritage of like reason why advertising or kind of the hard sell advertising, like it's been around for 100, 120 years. It's when the industry was professionalizing and it kind of got cemented as like canon in the industry. This is how things work. It should be about selling. And it goes from... Kennedy to Lasker to Hopkins to Ogilvy and Ogilvy stuff is a lot, you know he's got a lot of different amazing quotations but he was a sales guy Ogilvy yeah. and so a lot of the way he approached it was selling and so it's kind of like it's been that way but it shouldn't be that way. I liked his framing of uh, showmanship rather than salesmanship, yeah. which which I think is a very simple way of doing it, putting on a show because uh, I, there's a quote about you know the you know the oh, what is it rent the renting of a stage in your consumer's mind and therefore you know you, you don't you haven't you don't you know you, you've got to earn the rights to be noticed haven't you and I, I quite like that framing so you've got 30 seconds or maybe even 10 you know how are you going to capture their attention and entertain them right. it's not a it's not a reserve where you hunt that's, it that's a, it that's it's a it, stage yeah. you read re- it's to a stage you read yeah. rather than I think a, it was Howard yeah, Gossage maybe who said one. that in 1970 or something I'll like chuck that, that yeah. in the notes because uh, yeah. I probably bastardized it somewhat yeah. in the in the retelling there but Paul is doing an amazing service to everybody in the broader marketing advertising world just by explaining how, how important fame is, how important publicity is. I mean, his books are essential reading for everybody. Like too many too many futurists in marketing and advertising and not enough historians. And he's probably like the grand historian of them all. That's, that's a very good point. Well, actually, you know, I mean, we're perhaps overexposed as we are to, you know, some of the industry greats and, and the work that's out there. But in every marketing team I've run, the, the, the illiteracy when it comes to this stuff is just shocking. How, the, the amount of people that have actually read anything like that is, is you could count them on hand. So there's a, there's a well, big job to do to save the world, as we just said. It's a noble <laughs> so, calling. But yeah, and a lot of what marketers do is just based on habit. You know, it's what my boss told me. It's how I think it works. A lot of people just haven't even thought about it that deeply because I think some of this stuff is common sense if you really think about it. You know, when was the last time you saw an ad dropped everything and went out to buy the product? Yeah. Like never. Yeah. And yet that's how 99% of B2B marketers measure the effectiveness of their campaigns. So there is just like a common sense test. But yeah, you'd think every once in a while you just check out what does the empirical research say about what drives sales uh, or profitability. Well, let's come to an uncommon sense point, which I know you guys broke last year, which I, I, I think is, is is little understood, but very powerful when you, when you get it, is the 95% rule, right? Which I, I thought was absolutely genius because it touches on a big misconception. Can you explain what the 95% rule is? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll start by telling the story. Uh, we went out down to Australia, Peter and I, we went out with Mark Ritson one night and got horribly hungover. And the next day, Peter flew to Sydney like a wise person. And like an idiot, I flew to Adelaide to meet with Samarinburg Bass folks. And I met with John Dawes, who's a professor there. And in a very hungover state I was in, he told me that, you know, just very casually, like, you know, most people are not, you know, in market at any given time. Something like 95% of people are not in market to buy our product or service. 5% of people are. And I perked up just enough to be like, wait, is that... Is there evidence for that? Is there data for that? Yeah, there's a ton of evidence, ton of data for that. I had never heard that. I thought it was totally fascinating. The first thing I did is say, Can, will you write a paper on this for us? He said, yes. The second thing I did was step outside and call Peter. But it basically just gets at, again, how advertising works. The yeah. primary job, because 95% of people empirically are not in market in any given period, it can't work by getting you to buy right then exactly. because you're not in market, exactly. right? So 95% of people are not going to buy. 5% of people are going to buy. The 5% who are going to buy, sure, serve them an ad that says buy now. The other 95%, the job is not to get them to buy, the job is to get them to remember. So it's not to be clickable, it's to be memorable. You know, another way I've heard this described is our whole industry runs on last click attribution, but you know, the best search engine is the one in your head. You know, it's not the one that you click on that gets all the credit, which is Google, it's in your head. You see an ad, you remember the brand, you're in the category to buy and you buy. So, you know, it is a it is profound because it actually does pencil through a little bit the persuasion versus publicity idea, but does it with hard data. It's also something that works in B2C and in B2B. Like these ideas that replicate across industry are very powerful concepts. I mean, I would say, if you don't mind me being a bit provocative, you know, 
in some ways, like if Les and Peter and B2C are talking about the 60-40 rule, like our contribution to B2B is that we collectively identify with John Dawes. John Dawes identified the 95-5 rule, but I would say Peter and I are helping to popularize it. Exactly, that's our yeah. contribution. Yeah, 100%. No, I agree. I, I think it's very profound because you think about performance marketing, everyone's obsessed with the last click and conversion. And but the 95-5 rule changes that completely in terms of what's the role of it is to be remembered, is to brand, you know, build your brand. Yeah. I mean, e- even on a, I mean, I worked on Lucas A, which is the biggest energy drink in the UK. We still had like our average buyers bought us twice a year, right? They're not thinking about even the, the most popular energy drink in the UK that often, you know? Right. No one's in market. Pretty much no one. 95% of people are not in market. It's about getting remembered on that rare occasion when somebody's looking to buy the category. And the type of marketing that does that isn't the product feature, rational, heavy type stuff we've been talking about. It's the talking geckos and stuff that cuts through and gets some sort of emotional response. Yeah. Yeah. It's just hard to find metrics that finance people or salespeople will trust that that allow marketers to run more on kind of like, hey, we're, the job is to build memories. It's not yeah. to build clicks or generate clicks, right? So like a lot of our job has been trying to figure out, you know, honestly, with a lot of the, you know, mental availability stuff or mental market share or category entry points is how do you actually measure that in a way that links to buying situations that gives you the data you need in commercial language to go have those conversations with the salespeople, the finance people, the product people who are inherently kind of mistrustful or distrustful. I'm not sure what the word is, to be honest with you. Um, It's late in the day. I think also uh, a sort of theme of the work of the B2B Institute is about aligning marketing with finance. In B2B, everyone's obsessed with aligning marketing and sales, but pretty hard to actually align marketing and sales for various reasons. One of them just being the time horizons are very different. Salespeople want results this quarter because that's how they get paid. Most of the results of marketing do not pay off this quarter. Uh, But one thing we love about the 95-5 rule is it's actually pretty easy to explain to finance people and to even frame in financial terms because if you actually look at how most businesses are valued, they're not valued on this quarter sales. They're valued based on future cash flows. Like an analyst would tell you something like 80% of the value of a stock is based on sales 10 plus years in the future. So in financial terms, what do you want? You want future cash flows. Where do future cash flows come from? They come from future customers, which is the 95%, right? So if you've got this mental model of 80% of our values and future sales, 95% of buyers are future buyers. It's very hard to then argue 100% of our budget and effort should be spent chasing the 5% of people who are in market today. That's it. There you have it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the sales funnel, to come back to the sales funnel and David Ogilvie and all this stuff, the sales funnel, which we use today as the marketing funnel, is actually about sales. It's about moving people through conversation down the funnel. And that's not really, I think, an accurate reflection of of what the customer journey is like. I think the in-market, out-market construct, the John Dawes one, that's actually something a, cu- a customer doesn't stand at the top of the funnel, at the bottom of the funnel. Yeah. You know, customer <laughs> do, might do you stand. Is that not how you buy? No, I, mean, I talk I mean, that way. And Peter I mean, talks I that know, way. Well, but normal people don't, right? We work in the industry. We're going right, out right, after right. this, aren't we? I'll, right, I'll exactly. make sure I'll, you know. I'll be at the top of the funnel for a steak right after yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? We're probably at the bottom of a, of yeah, a I'll be at the bottom of the funnel for a beer, you know. Yeah. But, you know, but you would say I'm in market for a car, right? You would say that, or like I'm not in market for a car, right? That's actual language you would use. So that's more customer focused, I would say. Our funnel, which is called the cash flow funnel. And the point Peter made about the finance, you know, angle, like our funnel, the cash flow funnel on its side in market, out market, it's more customer centric and more CFO centric. Yeah. And if you think about the stakeholders that marketers have to win over in B2B, yeah. it's sales and it's, it is, and it's finance. Well, it's funny you say that because I mean, I, I asked Byron who he wrote How Brands Grow for, and he said, I wrote it for the CFO. I was like, I, it suddenly made sense. It's like, finally, we have some empirical evidence for why we're doing the marketing we're doing so that the CMO has now got, can now win the argument with the CFO. He wrote a one-page paper for us as part of our intro to how B2B brands grow, which is one page on mental and physical availability, which I encourage everybody to go read yeah. because it is just the crispest, simplest, most commercial market-based yeah. explanation for how brands compete. It's yeah. brilliant. But this is also part of the reason why uh, B2B marketers invest so much in lead generation, performance marketing, because that's pretty easy to explain to somebody in finance. You know, you want leads, leads turn into sales. It seems very financial, which is why they get all the budget. Then the brand marketers come in ranting and raving about brand love and shifting perceptions and affinity. And unsurprisingly, like they're not the ones so, who finance gives the budget to. You've so. just described every marketing department on the planet. 
it. Yeah, well, it's why it's very ironic, but marketers are terrible at marketing marketing, you know? So we need to understand the customer. We need to fight finance with finance, as we say, and frame everything in a much more financial way. Yeah, and that's the importance of testing. That's the importance of Aaron Bass. All this stuff is, well, it's to improve marketing, of course, but it's mostly to win these arguments and, you know, get budget assigned and, you know, make sure you spend the money in the right place. Yeah, it's a great thing about a lot of the work, you know, you've done, John, is really linking creativity to financial outcomes and market share growth so that it's not just about like being fun and creative. If you want to just be fun and creative, you know, go work in Hollywood. If you want to gain market share through creativity, then you go work in advertising. Well, look, uh, th- 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 there's one scene that's repeated throughout my career, which which kind of always puts chills down. It's that moment you go to the board meeting and you reveal your ad for the first time, right? And I tell you, that's not fun because, <laughs> you know, I remember I remember I had this is really cool uh, ad with we had sort of uh, fruit go you know rolling down a mountain and you know dropping into waterfalls and it was, you know really creative uh, absolutely wonderful and I remember the CEO of this company I was working for just said uh, so when when can we see the real ad <laughs> <laughs> and you know I was some junior brand manager the first time I presented the board and my heart sank now as it happened this ad went on and won awards it, we grew sales forty five percent it was it, it was fantastic okay. I never got the moment to go back and present to him and go you know that ad you took the piss out of. Fun fact, totally unrelated. John uh, John has a fear of sharks. So I thought he'd enjoy the story. So apparently when John Williams first played that on the piano for Steven Spielberg, he said, here's what I have in mind as the score for Jaws. Steven Spielberg yeah. said, no, but seriously, John, what did you have in mind? You know, what's actually the score? Because it was so simple. So it's the same story in a Hollywood context. You know, on your point about, and this ties to the point you made about Uber Eats in the Super Bowl ad, I think a really important thing all marketers, especially in B2B or in B2C, need to think about, and it's not you don't always have to adopt this as your strategy, but category entry points are incredibly important because it's about buying situations and framing things to the biggest, highest value buying situations. I think if people would go into the board and say, we did a bunch of research, here are the three most important buying situations, this ad is about the most important, most commercially value buying, valuable buying situation, I think that conversation could be very different. Like you, we just need a, like the, the construct is creativity, but creativity within constraints or creativity within category or within situations. So, I mean, a lot of the things we are thinking a lot about and, and working on are, you know, it's category entry points as Jenny Romaniak, who I, you know, is one of the absolute stars of, of the marketing world would put it. I mean, we like to talk about it as situational awareness being much more important than brand awareness and the way to actually do that or achieve that is through the category entry point stuff. Yeah. But, um, and Uber Eats, you said did that very well. I didn't see the ad. Yeah. Well, you know, Uber Eats is known for the buying situation of ordering food and the ad was trying to attach them to the new buying situation of ordering soap, you know? So I think there's this idea. Uber non-eats as they describe it. Right, exactly. And it was still creative, but it was creative within the constraint of attaching the brand to a new buying situation. Um, you know, another B2C example would be Bailey's, which won an IPA award for just getting people to think of Bailey's in different buying situations beyond Irish coffee. Salesforce, to come back to them as a case study in this, everyone had heard of Salesforce. They had brand awareness. They didn't have situational awareness because nobody knew when to think of Salesforce. And that's what their Trailblazers campaign does. It links the brand to CRM buying situations. So this idea of buying situations John's talking about, I think it's inherently more commercial, which is more finance friendly, but it's also supported by the research that that's the type of marketing that drives better outcomes. It all comes back to something Ritson always talks about. The biggest mistake all marketers make is not being market oriented, not caring about the customer. You know, brand awareness is asking about the brand. Don't ask about the brand, ask about the customer. So not brand awareness, situational awareness. You know, um, our funnel, I like it because it's more customer focused. It's not the sales funnel. It's actually the customer funnel. So if marketers are just able to always view things through the lens of the customer, to borrow the Bezos idea, you work backwards from the customer, you know, then you will be much more successful. Category Entry Points does that very well because everything is framed through the situation and then the commercial value of the situation. Yeah. No, it makes complete sense. That's no, really good. Um, so coming back to data as well, um, am I right in saying you guys are now going to be sponsoring a Can Lion category as well? That, that, that's pretty big news. Yeah, we're excited about it. I think it's the first ever B2B Can Lion. I mean... John made the point, which I'll make again because it's an important point. You know, creativity in general, super powerful, major multiplier on sales effectiveness. There's almost no good creative in B2B. So it's a huge opportunity. 
And I do think, honestly, John, part of the problem is that the best creatives in our industry don't want to work on B2B accounts, right? Put me on the B2B account said no creative director ever in the history of our industry. So part of the thing is about incentives. What do creative people care about? One thing they care about is winning a campaign. But look, so, someone is going to, exactly, I was going to say that, as you know, give, given the entry bar being low, right, someone is going to walk off with a a nice of course. And I think it, it creates an incentive for yeah. better creativity in B2B, which is exactly what the industry needs to get better results, better creative. Yeah. If you also forecast a little bit, you know, the big, some of the biggest IPOs, like one of the absolute biggest IPOs last year was Snowflake. And Snowflake is a big, basically cloud computing company. They have something called Data Lakes, which I've tried to rename Data Reservoirs, but I don't think it's caught on yet. Because um, I actually think reservoir is a better explanation of what it is than a lake. Okay, but that very guys. pedantic cloud point aside, yeah. you know, if you forecast five, 10 years out, I mean, a lot of the biggest companies used to be Coke. A lot of maybe the future biggest companies are technology companies, they're B2B companies. And so more and more of the advertising dollars are going to be B2B dollars because the big companies spend a percentage of their revenue and that's right, that's the advertising money. So I think there is this kind of shift going on, which is very interesting. So our B2B can line happens at a very interesting time. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, think you're very well positioned. Well, look, you know, we, we, we've sort of referred to it, but we know from the evidence that creativity is the biggest multiplier of business success, right? We also know that creativity as measured in the system one test is underperforming B2C. And we also know that B2B is important for everybody, but as a category is growing, and as you said, in terms of technology, becoming even bigger. So the opportunity must be massive to get it right. It's a huge opportunity, and it's completely ignored. You know, It's why we, John and I love to be the B2B people. We love to work at the B2B Institute because there's just nobody talking or thinking about B2B. You know, a lot of our, our very simple strategy is to take the B2C research, like the Benetton Field yeah, research, yeah. the Arnberg Bass research, and just do a B2B cut, You know, so that somebody's yeah. finally speaking to this quote-unquote niche that's half the economy. You've now got me thinking, though. I, I don't think I've ever sat in an agency creds presentation where they've mentioned B2B uh, specifically. I don't, I, I don't think so. I don't know, have, you, have you guys ever sat in a creds presentation where they said, we are the creative agency of B2B? No, no, but everybody wants to be in B2C. The whole industry yeah. is designed around Procter & Gamble and Unilever. And as John said, you know, those are old, to a certain extent, stagnating companies, right? So the real question is, what are the growth companies coming from? It's, yeah. it's going to be B2B, and the industry has to slowly retrofit itself for that reality, we would say. Yeah. I mean, the one weird, interesting thing about a lot of these companies is, you know, Bezos said this a while ago, and... I think it's pretty much true of all the high-flying kind of VC-backed companies that become the big snowflakes. They all believe that advertising is a tax you have to pay for being a bad product. That's what Bezos said. That's true. You know, now, of course, Amazon makes a lot of money by having its customers. Biggest advertiser well, in the world. Well, ironically, biggest yeah, the biggest world, right? growth is technology. Yeah. But that's just, that again is kind of like, that's canon in the world of VC, where a lot of these companies come from, which is... Like a lot of VCs won't back companies that spend a lot of money on advertising because they yeah. think the product isn't good enough. Yeah. So they, more than anybody in some ways, have built this myth of product. And product is important, don't get me wrong, but you need good product, you need good marketing. You don't just buy the best product. You buy the best product that you know about. That's the marketing part, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is satisficing, which we wrote about. Um, yeah. You know, like you don't always buy the best product, you just buy the best product you know. And I think people forget that. But I mean, it's... It is something to overcome because there is a lot of mythology around, you know, product is all that matters, you know, the kind of founding genius who's a product genius that the product sells itself. Right. So, I mean, Fun ads are just for Coca-Cola. Our ads have to be boring. Right. We've got to explain the product benefits. I mean, the amount of time Peter and I have <laughs> never had a car, our least successful marketing week article is about characters. Is it? That's yeah. the least successful. By far the least successful one. And it's absolutely consistent with everything we've ever experienced, yeah. which is, I've never had a conversation about characters with somebody in B2B where they were like, that's a great idea. Cause you know, the job is to be memorable. Yeah. No, they, they take yeah. out their spreadsheet of the 900 reasons why it's definitely a bad idea right. for them. Never work here. Now, you know, and then John and I show them the research. Most effective thing you can do is build a character. Nobody's doing it. You'd think we'd like brought them this revolutionary discovery of a, just a layup, a way to just crush the competition, but nobody wants to do I, it. I, I, I got a bit of a hypothesis on this because look, where we see the best use of characters and also celebrities tend to be in the most boring quote unquote like like bread right so you take bread and warburton's in the uk will have the muppets right uh do, you know and, and getting a five-star ad which is absolutely genius 
But when you get into a technology category where it's feature heavy and they've got so much they think to talk about, that's where you tend to not have characters. Yeah, it's such an important point because a lot of our clients would be like, well, my product's really boring, so I can't possibly have talking animals. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, do you think car insurance is an interesting category? <laughs> yes. uh, you know, do you know any car insurance brands that have characters? Oh, yeah, now that you think about it, you know, the Geico Gecko, Geico, Flow from Progressive, yeah. Mayhem. So this idea that because the product's boring, my advertising has to be boring. To your point, it's the exact opposite. If your product's boring, you better have the most interesting, entertaining messaging out there, which is why, hilariously, almost all the best advertising is in the car insurance category. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, car insurance is where everybody should go. Everyone asks, like, who's good in my category? And I always say, like, nobody's good in your category. There's nobody you should copy in your category. You should honestly go look at all of the car insurance. Yeah. I mean, it's the same in the UK actually. You got Churchill, you got go, you got go compare, Meerkats. So what? Meerkats is pretty much the yeah, gecko, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But same, it's also this idea of competitive pressures. Another another theme about how important it is to be contrarian. Yeah. Because everyone's ads are good in yeah. car insurance. You need to have good ads yes. to be in the yeah. category. In B two B, nobody has good ads, so everybody can get away with having terrible ads. But that's the opportunity. Really you can nice. be the only one with yes, good creative in B two B. My favorite new advertiser, and a lot of people don't like these ads, but I think they're brilliant, is uh, Liberty Mutual. You know, they've got two characters. Liberty, Liberty, They've got Liberty. Steve and Limu, Limu, yeah. Emu. They've got the color yellow everywhere. Yeah. They've, got, they've got the jingle, Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. And I talked yeah. to a guy who runs a company called Sound Out, which is a sonic asset testing yeah. company. And he said, oh. just introducing, just saying the name of a brand, like saying Geico Presents, which apparently they do at all start of all their ads, or saying Liberty, Liberty in a TV ad, Apparently, it just doubles your recall. You know, so it's, it's what I'm always so frustrated by is B2B marketers in, in particular claim to be super data driven. And then you show them the data and they don't follow the data. And I'm like, well, are you data driven or are you not data driven? You know, uh, and it just it's just that is the thing that drives me the most nuts. I hate the theater, the theater, data theater or performance theater of these B2B marketers who claim to be super data driven and super empirical. And I'm like, you couldn't be anything further from it because I've showed you a bunch of stuff. And now you're like giving me a story rather than looking at the data, you're giving me the story about why you can't have a grumpy kumquat as your, as your mascot. And I just think that that's insane. Everyone deserves their own version of the grumpy kumquat. Well, it brings us back actually to Boston Beer, where we started at the beginning with the Sam Adams ad, because they have your cousin from Boston, like that. That's a great Boston accent. Know, you, just, is that authentic? That's from growing up in Boston? I, no, I haven't been to Boston, actually. But yeah, that's very obvious. I've heard now, a lot. John, yeah, yeah, I know. Thank you. You're <laughs> not from New England. Bad. That's obvious. I, was, I know. I was just going through. Should I try this out or not? Anyway. Wrong England, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's what Leslie was saying, is that just, just the way they say it and the fact they have the graphics at that point and your cousin from Boston being this construct that everyone has a you know cousin friend from Boston who mucks about and it's a, it's a thing, you know, and just owning that little device. And um, she was saying that, you know, that, that when he got to get, you know, the character got to get a vac went to get a vaccine and fainted sort of thing, you know, they can just spin out that character and put that character in any number of situations and people will, you know, laugh, they'll recognize it and so on. And that's what characters do because you can suddenly then play with that character in so many buying situations, different different scenarios, and it can run and run. And it's stylish. I think this whole idea that style matters more than substance. All of our clients, they're so focused on the substance yes. of what yes. they're saying, they're not focused on how they say right. it. Probably our favorite marketing book, uh, certainly one of them would be Les Bennett and Sarah Carter's book, You know How Not to Plan. And they talk about this idea of meta communication and that most communication is not what you say, it's your expression on your face, it's how you use your hands, it's your tone of voice. Yeah. You know, that's that's how it works in marketing or advertising, right? It's how you say it, and are you saying it in a fun, interesting way that cuts through? Uh, but instead, it's all about are we highlighting the right product features? So the emphasis is just totally in the wrong place. Yeah. On this point of style, you know, the way a lot of the testing works is there's cut through, and then there's basically brand linkage, right? And so I believe actually Kate Newstead from Ehrenberg Bass, although she's no longer there, did a piece of research that shows that only 40% of ads cut through, and of those 40% that cut through, only 40% are actually linked to the correct brand. So 16%, if you do the math, of ads are, they cut through and they get brand linkage, which means 84% of ads, either through bad cut through or bad recall, are wasted, right? That dollar, that money's wasted. And the way you, I think, measure recognition is I show you a frame of the ad, and you have to say, like, which brand is that from, basically. This is where to your point, like style so insanely so important. important. If you go look at any Liberty Mutual ad, yeah. 
You cannot see a single frame where it's not super yellow. There's always the Liberty Mutual logo in there or one of the characters in there. You could never see a frame that wouldn't immediately be clear to you that by all of its kind of like style, it is obviously Liberty Mutual. But I don't think anybody is actually taking kind of, and in that sense, it's like a real art. I don't think anybody's applying the art to it. I always think of it as like a Wes Anderson movie. Like you can see a Wes Anderson movie yeah. and immediately know that it's Very a Wes Anderson movie. Or and a Van Gogh painting. Or a Van, Van Gogh painting, painting. right. The paintings is the good one because you can always recognize paintings. Like that is how distinctive, immediately distinctive, recognizable your stuff needs to be. And just no, even in B2C, people don't really know. Yeah, that. but in B2B, I mean, our new work we did together with System One talks about how, you know, almost every B2B ad has the same format where they're like, we're not going to tell you what it's an ad for until the last <laughs> second. Yes, you know, it's going to be yeah. a bit. As video. though consumers Ta-da. are like sitting on the edge of their um, seat, just dying to know who's running the ad. Oh, they know. Yeah, as <laughs> opposed to like they stop paying attention after the first three seconds. Well, listen, attention is really interesting because we did this thing with Lumen actually, looking at the relationship between emotion and attention, right? Because basically emotion regulates, doesn't it? Regulates what we pay attention to. And we took a, 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 an ad from Apple, very product centered. It was the HomePod, you know, kind of very, very focused in on the, you know, on the audio. And then the other one was this, a very entertaining ad from Barclay Carb with these gorillas, right? And these gorillas are kind of mucking about playing cricket and then people are walking past, are they actually gorillas? And then you just see the scene unfolds where they, they then take their masks off and you realize that, you know, they're, they're two guys mucking about. It's a very entertaining ad. Tells you nothing about Barclay Card, although at the end it said, if only fraud was this easy to spot, so, you know, very, very clever idea. Anyway, we looked at it and um, we actually measured the number of minutes that people kept watching the ads for. Over, you know, compared the two, one was one star, one was five star, four times the number of minutes. So with the entertaining one, where people were intrigued, like what's going on here, these gorillas, what's going on, four times the number of minutes. Yeah, this so idea, just, yeah. it's so important of attention. I think, you know, there's this, I don't think our clients fully understand that nobody's trying to pay attention to their ads. and that people actually, are actively the, avoiding right, you. exactly. <laughs> they're trying to not they're pay They're trying attention. to walk past. So your number one job you're trying to overcome <laughs> yeah. is to get noticed and get people to pay attention. And obviously listing like the product specs and that it's 80% faster or 30% cheaper, you know, that's not going to do it. Gorillas, you know, talking gorillas, that's something people, people are trained to pay well, attention to We're back to characters, to aren't we? Yeah. 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 All roads lead back to characters. Oh, yeah. The least popular idea John and I have by far. You asked about our most popular ideas. Say, yeah. We really want to talk about our least popular ideas, yeah, which yeah. is brand characters. There is an idea called the picture superiority effect. This is Ehrenberg Bass research that basically confirms everything you guys have done with Orlando. And it just shows that characters are the most recognizable, the most memorable, and they're never confused or rarely confused with other brands. Whereas things like taglines and colors, they're often confused with other brands or not associated with your brand. So all of the evidence, you know, mostly because of the picture superiority effect and we're trained to kind of recognize faces would say like, use a character, you know, it's going to be linked to you and it's not going to be confused with anyone else. You know, but again, like people just can't for whatever reason. I mean, there's so much evidence out there for it, but people just don't, I don't know. I mean, it is because they, they tell themselves stories about it's too frivolous. It's not serious enough, Yeah, but it's a real shame. That, that, that I think is it. Cause you, cause you have the appearance of not taking it seriously. Right. You know, I mean, Byron was saying on the podcast, like you can't get better than a banana. I mean, you cannot mistake a banana for a bana- anything else, can you? You know, yellow, the shape, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess hardwired in our brains is this ability to recognize fruit, you know, animals, you know, other people and so on. That's why it makes for such good distinctive assets. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing that we talk a lot about, which we you mentioned it a little bit earlier, or what you said made me think of it is the Boston accent, right? Yeah. To use that over time, then you get known for it or the jingle. You've got to use these things for long periods of time. They're compounding assets, right? They don't work immediately. They compound and get stronger over time. And you need to concentrate on it and commit to it. But creative agencies and clients don't like old ideas or they don't like committing to the same idea for long periods of time. They like new ideas and they make a lot of their money from new ideas. And so the incentives are just skewed against doing the thing that becomes effective. So that's why you have the wear out, wear in myth, you know. Those kinds of devices, repeating devices, they, they wear in, they become more effective over time. But the, the actual belief is that things are gonna wear out if you yeah. if you yeah. if you use them or repeat them. And it's just, you know, it's another example where, you know, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes, Charlie. That's Monk. so spot. I mean, we, we got tons of evidence now from the system on database that the same ad repeated again gradually gets better. No, no, not dramatically, but you look at it over three or four years and it, it you know, you're, you're shifting up often by a start, but it's fascinating. And also the fluency, brand awareness also increases because familiarity not only gives you contentment, but it also 
allows you to recognize it quicker. Yeah. Well, we talked about the product delusion. That's holding B2B marketers back. They think they need to just explain that they have the best product, convince people to buy it by listing the product features. But then there's this originality delusion that we're talking about. It's got to be new. It's got to be real time. I mean, that's always one of my checklists with a Super Bowl ad. Is it about the Super Bowl? Uh, that year. If so, it's a bad ad because guess what? You can never run it again. You know, it's why Netflix doesn't invest in news and sports because you can't rewatch news and sports uh, as opposed to Hollywood, which only makes prequels, sequels, remakes. <laughs> Top 10 movies of all time, eight of them are prequels, sequels, or remakes. So familiarity, old ideas are actually where all the money's at, you know, but everyone in our industry is all about New, new, new. Creative fatigue, which is when that's marketers- true. Actually, as you you reminded me of it. I did a study years ago into the most successful soft drink launches of all time, and eight out of ten were ver- versions of existing soft drinks. They weren't new, new. They were just like you know, Coke doing a zero. Yeah, there was this great research we used to cite in our originality delusion trend that like four out of five times the old campaign outperforms the new yes, campaign. Yes, yes. So there's just, we're hardwired for change. It's just humans in general have an intervention well, I remember bias. I, yeah. We want to look like we're doing something. You look lazy and incompetent if you're not doing something. But sometimes doing nothing is the move. And I think the that's certainly The best new campaign is often an old campaign. Yeah, exactly. What is the what is Maya most acceptable yet yeah, yeah. advanced? It's this design principle from Raymond Louis. Most, most advanced yet acceptable. So like Henry Ford calls it the horseless carriage because it grounds the new idea, horselessness, and the old idea of a carriage. So it's like you got to be surprising and familiar. Um, so even if you change it, even if you change the creative, it's got to be incremental. Yes. You got to build Work on very the memory hard to make structures. it feel familiar. Exactly. Yeah. I exactly. would be remiss if I didn't mention my favorite modern example of this new and old, like one foot in the old, one foot yeah. in the new, which is Bitcoin, which is bits, which are all about kind of digital, but coins, which are obviously very old very, and traditional. Yeah. That's a very good, you know, kind of framing uh, as well. It's, it's great to just have some more crypto advertising. I, I know we just space. need to get back. No, yeah. just, there's not enough, not enough crypto advertising these but days. Have you bought some Bitcoin? John, I mean, John is an absolute Bitcoin enthusiast. I have learned a lot. There's, there's an idea called Bitcoin maximalism, people who only believe in buying Bitcoin and nothing else, which has uh, actually given us the idea. We have uh, our trends coming out every year we do. Plug, shameless plug. Um, we have our B2B trends that come out. They're never about B2B, but they're just about fun ideas we learned about marketing, a lot of like mental models that we like. But we've got one coming out on reach maximalism, which uh, pays homage to Bitcoin maximalism. Well, listen, I think we've got to a good point to end. So uh, I'll go and sort my Bitcoin accounts out and uh, get settled up. But uh, listen, guys, it's been a real blast. Thank you for coming on. And look look forward to seeing uh, the uh, takeover of Can Lions in the summer. Yes, we can't wait. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank Uh, you. I've had a wonderful time and uh, this was it. This was it. Very good. Thank you, gentlemen. So thank you everyone for listening in to uh, this episode of the Uncensored CMO, looking at B2B marketing with Peter and John from LinkedIn's B2B Institute. If you want to look them up, then obviously uh, jump on into LinkedIn and look up Peter Weinberg and John Lombardo. They're very worth following because uh, they post lots of really good content regularly. If you'd like to find out more about Uncensored CMO and never miss an episode, then please do subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Amazon Podcasts as well i've just joined amazon as of this month so you can find me there as well thank you for following me if you want to get in touch john evans that's john without an h over at linkedin or on twitter at uncensored cmo i'd love you to leave me a review or drop me some feedback or any ideas for future guests are always welcome so listen thanks for listening i really appreciate you following and uh, look forward to you joining me next time